to NeuroPodcases, a neuroscience podcast created for medical students. To get the most out of this episode, we recommend downloading the supplementary case notes which are available on Vital. Here you'll find more information about the case, including history, examination and investigation findings. We hope you enjoy listening. Hello, I'm Sarah Healy and I'm here today with Dr Davis. Hello there. Consultant neurologist at the Walton Centre. This podcast is designed to give an overview of an approach to taking a neurology history. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so with that in mind, Dr Davies, where would you tend to start? Okay, Uh, so it's a big challenge, isn't it? But I think that the key concept is the concept that I bang on about in the whole of the year one and year two modules, which is clinico-anatomical correlation. So the thing that's really complicated about the nervous system compared to other systems is its anatomy, its structure, and when we learn about neuroscience, really it's all about getting familiar with the anatomy and knowing which bit of the nervous system does what, so that when that bit of the nervous system has a disease in it, a lesion, we can infer uh, from the bits that don't work where that disease is happening. So this would be uh, things like having weakness in both your legs, a paraparesis, so the most obvious bit where the wires corresponding to both your legs come together and that they may be damaged at the same time. The obvious bit there would be the spinal cord. By contrast, if you had a hemiparesis, uh, problems with working one half of the body, those wires are near to one another within the brain, above the site of decussation, which is in the medulla. And of course, there are sort of slightly less uh, famous versions. Uh, The optic chiasm would be another interesting location. So if if you have a visual field defect affecting both eyes in the same way, a homonymous defect, that would suggest that the problem is uh, within the brain posterior to the chiasm. And likewise, um, if you've got uh, a lesion of a particular peripheral nerve, you you can uh, uh, work out which nerve it is from where the weakness in the sensory impairment uh, might be. So, so really, when you're taking a neurological history, you need to be using all of the human being within yourself to listen very closely to what the patient is saying, and you need to use all of the scientists within yourself to be thinking which bit of neuroanatomy does that symptom seem to fit in with. So where is very important? That is the most distinctive question in neurological assessment, I would say. Where is the lesion? And what would be the next step? Oh, so the next question is when? Right. Okay. So this is a this is this is a bit like telling a joke. It's all about the timing. Um, so uh, this this applies to all 
disease types in all systems really doesn't it you know so so if you've got an injury or if you've got a blockage in a blood vessel then that comes on suddenly okay and that applies to uh, brain injury and to strokes affecting the brain uh, whereas if you've got a disease coming on over a very long time that's likely to be due to degenerative pathology and of course the nervous system has more than its fair share of degenerative diseases that affect it and then you've got things in between so over hours and days you might have infections or inflammatory processes coming on and maybe over weeks and months you might have symptoms from a neoplastic lesion coming on so that's that's the basic uh, uh, way of approaching that where and that's the basic way of approaching that when question um, I think it's worth mentioning two other bits uh, for timing in the neuroscience and that is paroxysmal symptoms paroxysmal or intermittent symptoms and again uh, there's there's quite a, a, a rich uh, assortment of paroxysmal symptoms, various types of neurological attacks. Uh, so, um, for instance, electrical disturbance in the brain leading to epilepsy. Um, so that usually uh, causes symptoms very briefly, maybe over a minute or so or less, because occasionally seizures last longer. But but when when seizures occur habitually, they're usually very brief. Whereas another classical type of intermittent symptom uh, uh, causation would be inflammation. That would occur in MS, for instance. And in inflammatory disease, it would usually come on over a much longer period. Uh, so, so actually, uh, um, if you had loss of vision from optic neuritis uh, as part of MS, the worsening of vision in that case would usually come on over a period greater than 24 hours, very different timing from a seizure problem. While uh, a transitory blockage of a blood vessel leading to a TIA would usually be somewhere in the middle in terms of its duration. So that's important. And then finally, um, I think it's always important when you're taking a neurological history to be very clear about when things started, because neurological symptoms can be quite subtle. You know, it's not just a pain in the chest or, uh, um, you know, a pain in your leg, which declares itself very clearly. Neurological symptoms can be quite subtle. And sometimes symptoms have been brewing or very gradually coming on for a long time and they seem to present acutely but actually that's because a functional threshold is crossed and suddenly the patient or their loved ones are suddenly aware of it so understanding that some neurological symptoms may present acutely even when the onset of the disease process wasn't in that instant like being knocked on the head or whatever. So those would be the key issues in terms of analysing the when, the timing of neurological symptoms. When considering neurological histories, one of the things I've noticed since starting the registrar training is managing a lot of different symptoms that can come okay. at you at once yeah, in a way yeah. that 
you know, I'm sure GPs and in general medicine as well, they notice yeah. this. The neurological yeah. symptoms can be very varied. How, how yeah. do you approach that? Um, I think you have to give it time. Uh, so when patients are expressing that range of symptoms to you, they need to feel confident that you have heard them. So it's really important that uh, you pay close attention and, you know, you show all the appearances of being attentive, even though, as I'm about to emphasise, the more disparate features that are presented to you altogether, the less likely it is that that's going to denote a serious sinister disease within the wires of the nervous system. So you sometimes, in a consultation, uh, even when you're as old and experienced as I am, you sometimes find yourself uh, more confused as to what may be happening as the conversation and the consultation unfold. And initially that's unsettling, but you do get to a point of experience in neurology and in medicine where that scenario gives you a little bit of confidence and you can impart to the patient the idea that if they've had such a range of symptoms implying that something has been happening in all those parts of the nervous system corresponding uh, and yet, in between times, they're able to function, that is quite reassuring that it's likely to be due to a reactive chemical process uh, that is transient in those bits of the nervous system rather than a progressive disease like a cancer or a scarring process or a degenerative process. So I think um, that... Uh, very uh, long list of symptoms that patients sometimes present in a way is very reassuring but as a clinician you need to be especially engaged uh, in those uh, episodes of history taking in order to manage that successfully and of course um, you need to be aware of that clinico-anatomical correlation and sometimes weird combinations of symptoms um, can be the truth being stranger than fiction. You know, the brown saccade example with one leg showing weakness and the other leg showing numbness pointing to a lesion in the in one half of the spinal cord, that's a that's a specific bit of information that, that your expertise might contain. So you need to be careful, but generally, the more uh, generous the list of symptoms, the more reassuring you can be. Okay, so that's really useful in a situation when there's a lot of history, mm. but sometimes in neurology there's, there's no history and you can come across patients who are unconscious, so we've had seizures who can't give you anything. That's perfectly true, yeah. Um, what so, would be your approach with these? Well, so, so the nervous groups? system is what the patient uses to present their history to you, so, so if certain bits of, of the nervous system 
aren't working, then you need another approach and, you know, you'd get a collateral history, wouldn't you? And, and occasionally uh, that can be from the documents that are available to you, but usually it's from a witness. Uh, and the two main scenarios for that uh, would be uh, when people are unconscious uh, and usually it's attacks of unconsciousness from conditions such as epilepsy. Um, so you get the history from, from a witness and you're looking for features of a generalised epileptic type seizure of stiffness, a tonic phase followed by jerking, the, the clonic phase of a tonic-clonic attack and then uh, confusion that occurs after the event, postictal confusion. So that would be uh, a classical uh, confirmation of a seizure disorder from a collateral history, if you've got that description. And then the other group, of course, uh, is those with impairment of cognition. So that may be impairment of speech and the ability to uh, convey uh, what the patient may have experienced or equally uh, impaired memory and of course that's the commonest cognitive mm -hmm. impairment of all seen as a consequence of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so in those patients you need to interpret very carefully uh, a patient telling you that there's nothing wrong with them whereas the relative who's taken care to join them in the consultation might be um, making gestures uh, alongside that suggests to you really that there is something quite significantly amiss and um, so you you need to be clear as to the value of collateral history uh, in neurology. Great so we've got a couple of um, things to tackle the history with there some mm. general points but mm. are there any specific red flags or concerning features that oh, get your gosh. attention? Well there's, there's, there's perhaps too long a list of red flags to go through comprehensively but but there are a few things I would say so um, uh, in relation to headache um, uh, a very sudden onset of headache a thunderclap headache that might denote some kind of vascular uh, crisis within the brain a, a, a partially ruptured uh, aneurysm that might lead to a very serious subarachnoid haemorrhage if untreated, so that would be one. Um, in less acute situations, persistent headache would be more of a red flag than intermittent headache. I would say in general that persistent and progressive symptoms more of a red flag than intermittent symptoms, however intense intermittent symptoms would be, those would be much more in keeping with reactive things like intense migraines with head pain that's very severe but also sometimes aura type uh, neurological impairments that can be very intense in some patients. And then I think um, there's two key anatomical bits to be aware of uh, in neurology practice. One is uh, your vital functions uh, by which I mean um, your ability to swallow and to breathe. So there are certain conditions of the brainstem 
the nerves coming out of the brain stem, which can be affected in conditions like Guillain-Barre syndrome, and the neuromuscular junction connected to those nerves in myasthenia gravis. So it's really important if a patient presents with failure of uh, swallowing and respiratory function to act on that in the ED. That's really important as a red flag. And then the other thing would be disease in the spinal cord, where you could have weakness in both your legs, a sensory level, and disturbance of sphincter function. So those would be important red flags. And finally, with paroxysmal symptoms, I think um, features pointing to actual epilepsy, so a tonic-clonic attack with postictal confusion, but also in terms of paroxysmal attacks, um, giving it to the cardiologists on this occasion, actually uh, there are far more immediately life-threatening and potentially curable causes of the brain not working, that is unconsciousness, there are far more uh, remediable and life-threatening causes of that within the heart than there are in the brain. So if you've got someone who has funny turns, as well as thinking about neurological things, it's really important to be aware of cardiovascular things. Great. Um, so any other general advice you'd give? Oh, um, again, I'm thinking about the complexity of the nervous system and um, I'm sure that neurology uh, isn't necessarily the most difficult branch of medicine, but I would say that the nervous system is the most difficult organ system of the body to understand in its entirety. And I think, therefore, in neurology, we have to confront uncertainty uh, in the presentations that we see. And that's not really about taking a history. It's not really about what the patient says to you. But I would say it's really important for you to engage and to be attentive with the patient whilst not saying things that make the situation more scary than it is. And that engagement, whether in primary care or specialist practice, with the uncertainty that the patient feels and saying, I'm reassured, but we'll keep an eye on it. Maybe arranging to see the patient again after a few weeks. Maybe reassuring the patient that they can come back to see you so that you manage that uncertainty in a safe way and in a therapeutic way for the patient. I think that's pretty important in neurology. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, look out for more podcast episodes coming out shortly.